and welcome everyone. I am Caleb Flaggy and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, we'll be discussing virtual reality with Dr. Benjamin Locke, co-founder of Shadow Health and a computer and information sciences professor at the University of Florida. Shadow Health uses virtual reality to help healthcare providers learn how to communicate with patients by allowing them to practice in a virtual environment. Dr. Locke will discuss uses of VR and risks that technology poses to society. We'll also discuss finishing his first Ironman triathlon and how he was able to weave his training into his commitments to his company, the university, and his family. Enjoy. So you are a co-founder of Shadow Health and a professor at the University of Florida. Can you give me some background on both of those? Yeah. So in 2003, I moved to, uh, to Gainesville, Florida. I finished my postdoc and, and started here in the computer science department the, at, at UF so in 2003 and did a lot of research into my, my, my areas in virtual reality, uh, really think about how people interact with um, virtual experiences. And so one, some of the stuff that we do there is around virtual humans and how we can use them for training. We do a lot of work with, in the healthcare space, uh, getting doctors and nurses additional practice on how to talk to people through letting them use virtual, uh, interacting with virtual people. So we, we did research there for many, I still do the research in that space, but after about um, six years in that, we published papers and had some intellectual property that we thought, hey, th- th- we know this work can help people and we'd like to see whether we can commercialize and get it out there. And so we partnered with the university as Office of Tech Licensing and they uh, were able to find entrepreneurs in town and one of them, um, co-founder David Messias, connected with me uh, and, and we started, um, he took a look at our work, did some market research, and then he came back and goes, hey, you want to start a company? And I go, well, I don't know what that means at all and I seem to have a little bit of time. I didn't know what I was getting into. And he said, yeah, there, there seems to be a market. Um, you've been working with doctors, but really the, the way we can have a big impact is working with nurses. So uh, we started Shadow Health in 2011 with, um, again, David Messias and Aaron Catranza, who was in my lab, uh, got his PhD. Um, he, uh, Aaron, David, and I co-founded the company. It was really David and Aaron who really took the company, especially in its formative stages, because I'm still a full-time professor. So they were the ones who really took the idea and um, started the business marketing side of it to, um, to, in 2011. And now we're eight years into it. Uh, we've got over 110 employees now at Shadow Health and located downtown across from the Hippodrome. Um, we are we sell nursing we sell simulations to nursing schools, right? And and so it's for nursing students to gain additional practice on how to talk to people. So we create virtual people. They they get a practice. They get feedback on it. Um, educators get to see how the class is doing. And so now we are in over um, 900 different schools and over um, I think 2,000 different programs are using us. So it's really expanded. It's been very, very cool. And I think this current stat's about a quarter of all the nursing students in the U.S. and Canada are now trained using Shadow Health. Oh, wow. And you said that's your area of focus at the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. Is there any you know, kind of interaction between the university itself and the company, or how does how does that work? Well, the, uni- the university, um, they helped us whenever – Okay, so so I have no business background. When I I have considered myself a, a standard academic that had uh, focused on research, publishing papers, things like that. The university had identified that there might be some value in the things that we were publishing. That there might be some commercial value to it. So they approached me about getting a patent, applying for a patent. Um, they approached me to disclose the work, and that's what we did. Again, twenty ten is when we did that. Uh, they also helped me connect with the entrepreneurs in town. So they have a sort of Rolodex about people in town who are entrepreneurs who can, um, you know, who have the knowledge on how to start the business. So they really connected us with uh, with David, who is, again, the CEO of the company, but also an entrepreneur in town. Um, since then, they own part of Shadow Health. They, they have some stake in the company. Uh, they, they communicate. We, we've, and that they've, we've continued to license more stuff out of the university and into the company. So it's sort of been a nice pipeline to get ideas out of the university, but uh, you know, in, into people's hands to, to really potentially make an impact. How did that come through the Innovation Hub? Yes, yeah, so we were. So that's a good point. You brought Innovation Hub. Uh, we did spend time in the, in the Innovation Hub. We were the first people in. And we were actually the first graduates way oh, wow. back when, and we left in 2013. So we started in 2012. 
quickly I grew that space and it was it was good for that time of where our company was which was a year in uh, we needed a good place and uh, not only space wise but it connected you with lawyers um, so some some uh, capital and just different folks um, that w- that have been very valuable for us so tell me about your first experience with VR and how it shaped your future so back in 1992, I was a junior in high school. Uh, we went back to my home country of Malaysia. And uh, in there, we went to a casino. Uh, my parents uh, took us there. I was too young to gamble, so they stick you in the arcade as you're a kid. And I remember looking over, and there was this 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 very different. They had a lot of arcade cabinets back then. I don't know whether you know, how much your audience still remembers the arcades, but uh, they had one though that was a very different looking one. It's something that you could put on a headset, which I'd never seen before. Um, and so I was able to try that out. And I remember putting on a headset. It was a very simplistic game. Um, it was called a uh, dactyl nightmare. You can go Google YouTube videos of it now. Um, but it's very, very, it had graphics, the quality of PlayStation one. So very, very simplistic stuff. But I remember putting on that headset and it was a very simple game. You had to shoot the other player in the game. Uh, and sometimes a pterodactyl can come down and swoop and pick you up for some random reason. I, you never really understood why. Uh, but I remember taking it off the headset. And I go, wow, I actually felt that I was someplace else. Even with, even though the graphics were very simplistic and, and, and everything, I, I, I remember taking this off and going, I didn't know you could do that with games or computers or any of those things. I go, that, that sounds amazing. Fast forward going off to college and getting to take classes in computer science and then doing stuff in computer graphics, I really saw, oh, that's that could be my entry into this space. So I was able to uh, go off to graduate school. Um, there were a few graduate schools who focused in that space for a while um, at that time back in the mid-90s. I was very fortunate to go to uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, big Tar Heel fan uh, from there. So they, getting to go there and getting to because back then in the 90s, the computers and the equipment that it took to use virtual reality was in the t- hundreds to maybe million, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to a million dollars. And so um, uh, so what they say is, you know, it was for a few rich people that got to explore that. And I was very fortunate to be at a place where we could do that. Of course, fast forward to today. And now it's a consumer product that people can buy for $100, $200. Um, and to have a much better experience than what we ever were doing in the lab. So I think it's been amazing to see that transformation from something that only a few people had access to to now something lots of people have access to. How important is it that VR has become available to the general public? You know, it's the challenging part today for me, because I've been in the field for, again, over 20 years, is that it's it's amazing that the technology has been now, it's now accessible to people. However, if you ask people, what do you think VR is for? I think you would have, a, and I've done this not scientifically, but I've definitely asked large groups of audience, and you get a very entertainment-focused um, system. And as somebody who's a big video gamer myself, I find VR very bad for games. It's just like, why would you want to put on a head mount just to play a game whenever I can veg out on my sofa and play a lot of games for hours and not expend much energy? Um, so one of the things I'm very, very passionate about is to say VR, the, virtual reality is about storytelling. It really is. It's about a new way to experience and tell a story. And we need to figure out what stories are important to be told that way. And it's not not games, in my opinion, right? I mean, yes, there is a game market, but it's um, I doubt it's, it'll be ever as big as people think it is. It, you know, have, have currently, there's a lot of hype in it. But there's a lot of very, very powerful, useful benefits that we get from virtual reality. Other people have done lots of research in, for example, phobia therapy. That's a very, very common and very effective way to uh, do exposure therapy. It's helped veterans that recover from PTSD. Uh, so so there are lots of really important, obviously, uh, medical simulation and v, uh, military simulation. There's a lot of very powerful VR applications. And so part of my mission in my both my research side, but also my commercial side, is to push these more... Um, societal beneficial uh, applications of VR. What is it about VR that makes it so compelling for storytelling? You know, so so there's not one definition of VR. I think when people think about virtual reality, they think about head-mounted displays, that those are the, the, the glasses or goggles you see people wear. That's, uh, that's our, you know, for, for a lot of us that are in the field, though, that's, that's a very narrow definition. What we th- really think about is how can we provide stimuli 
to a person, what you see, what you hear, such that you play along, right? It's just like watching a movie. You know, when you watch a movie, I've got, I've got young kids now, so we watch, you know, we watch a lot of superhero movies. You know, it's not real, but you're playing along, right? And the story's fun, and the characters are fun, and they've got powers, and you just go with it. That's the same thing with VR, right? So they're putting images in front of your eyes, or they're giving you audio that you're supposed to hear. And nobody's fooled in the sense that this is real or not real, but you're in there for a story, and you get to play along. So what does that, be- what does that buy you? Most of the time, the story's first person, and that means it's mimicking what you and I see from our perspective, right? So uh, what some people think um, and have done research in is because it's a first-person perspective, do you get more empathy? Can you see the world through somebody else's eyes? Because it's in a very, um, it's in an immersively presented way. So that means when you turn your head, for example, in the head, in, in the head mount, you see the graphics turn appropriately, you play along. Like, oh, okay, I know what, uh, you're trying to get me to see the world through somebody else's eyes. Now, then the question is whose eyes would it be interesting to see? the world through, right? And I don't think it is the first-person shooter that you see in Call of Duty. And I love playing those games, and they're a ton of fun, but that's not the very interesting stories that could be told. So that's the part that we find very, very challenging and, 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 and an interesting research question is, how do we study that? How do we know, um, how, do we, how do we change sort of hearts and minds by getting people to walk in somebody else's shoes? Do you ever think about VR applications for navigating your own personal life? That's a great, great question. I have over time. Um, it, you know, this is sort of an aside because I've never really been able to follow up on it beyond the initial part. But I was touched by um, Randy Pausch's last lecture as a professor back in, I believe, 2008, who found out he has pancreatic cancer and only had a few more months to live. Uh, it, I think he ended up living, I think, for about a year after. Don't quote me on that. But anyway, so he, he gave a last lecture. And one of the things that he talked about was um, what would he say to his children? Because his kids were very, very young at that time, and the youngest would probably never remember him. And so I've I've thought about ways to use technology to help record experiences so that, you know, um, now, look, you know, I've got three young kids, but now they're on the ages of 10, 10, and 9. So they, my guess is if, unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, my my time here gets cut short, they probably would have some memory of me. But I, I had thought about what would it mean when they were, let's say, younger three and two or, or that age, how would I think about using VR to help them understand what the way I saw the world through my eyes? Because it could be valuable to them as they got older, right? So uh, so we did some initial stuff into that, and it um, has not progressed too much farther than that, but I always wanted to continue doing stuff like that. So we've talked a lot about the benefits of VR. Does VR pose a risk to society in any way? Well, with te- we see technology that's not well studied, um, has come out and it has a major impact. Look at Twitter, right? Look at Facebook. These are uh, misinformation and, and, and so many things that have gone on. So just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should, right? Or that we need that we um, need to know how how it all works. So I, as a counterexample of those, I think some of the deep fake video technology that people have started sharing and, and making available so that we can study it and know how to combat it as opposed to, oh, look, we can do it. Aren't, isn't that cool? There needs to be more in that. So I think about the same thing with virtual reality. Because we can tell compelling stories, we could tell stories that are not, are, are, you know, might, might have uh, societally detrimental effects. So um, that, but that's where my role as a scientist comes in. And I think we need to study that. We can't just go, oh, look, look at this cool, hammer that we invented now let's go go around and just try to smash everything if you want to chip paint off your window not a great tool for that right and so we need to study very carefully the the psychological effects of using vr um all these components so we don't just go bleakly just applying it out there and then we can inform the public so they know what this is and what it isn't because i think there's a lot of uh you know hype and over i don't say over imagination but misattribution of abilities uh, and promises uh, of the technology. What are the resources somebody needs to get started in creating a VR world? So the nice thing is um, not much, right? If you have a phone, a smartphone, um, you can actually, um, if you have... If you have a computer, you can download some, uh, uh, like a game engine called Unity 3D that's free. And on there, you can, there are tutorials that are free online that you can go through. And uh, within a few weeks, you can deploy your first VR experience to a phone. 
to, and if you put it on the store, actually millions of people have access to your story that you create. And we, I've done this with high school students who join my lab for just five weeks or six weeks over the summer. They can go through, there's a set of very simple tutorials on the Unity website that you can go through. And by the end, you can actually deploy your first experience on there. Um, so it, it, that has very much democratized the access to this technology. If you want to deploy it, and, and that same thing not only can be deployed on a phone, but some of these, if you've seen the Oculus headsets, all those devices too, you can also deploy it using this Unity platform. So the technology, and, and you don't have to be a developer or a programmer in any way. You don't need to know how to program. When I say most people, I really do mean that, and most people, regardless of your computing background or your experience um, can get into Unity, can do go through these tutorials um, and create your own virtual reality experiences. So that's one of the initiatives that I've done at the University of Florida is create a class called VR for the Social Good alongside a colleague of mine from journalism, Sri Kalyana Raman. And Sri and I put together this course and we teach hundreds of students a semester how to build their own VR experiences. And they come from a variety of backgrounds. We've had uh, students from journalism and from digital arts and from uh, nursing and psychology, and they can build experiences um, that they find compelling. In your view, what innovation in computer science will have the most impact on society in the next five years, and what should we look for now to know that it's happening? Well, if I knew that for sure, I'd be a very rich person, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Gainesville and I love our, our house, but, you know, yeah, for, for me, the, the thing that has been very, very um, concerning has been the concept of digital literacy, right? The, our ability for us to understand what is true and what is not true. It, uh, it's, it was hard. We see that disinformation from it, when it was in pen and paper writing format, but now the concept of actually doing this on electronic format at the speed that information can get sent out and things can get passed around. Uh, it's It's... It is, it's affecting our society, right? So the concept, we, we can be, we can get shielded and participate in this virtual world. When I mean, like, for example, Facebook or these spaces with just ideas that reinforce what we believe. And uh, we can get exposed to just things that are not, uh, that we're, our minds have not well adapted to. So for me, I think that the, the, the things that is is has has the biggest impact is this concept of digital literacy in computing so that just the speed that information can get shared these networks and communities that are being sprung up and that we don't really have a good way to know how to manage that stuff in our society it's affecting our that's i think that's why we see more polarization in politics we see more misinformation that gets sent out there are these you know medical issues that we think we've had cleared out and now there's a lot of inf misinformation to a point where people don't know what to trust and that's very very dangerous and so again just because we could send 144 character now 288 character tweet around the world doesn't mean that that's necessarily a good thing or we know how to process that as a society right and so i think that that to me has been a very profound societal change thing that has happened is the just the the proliferation of information um, so the so i know it, Although we think we think social networks have been around for a while, the new way it's being used is the thing that I yeah. So we need we need new research and new technologies to help address that. We don't have that yet. Can you describe the concept of the uncanny valley for our listeners? And can this concept be applied more broadly to AI and computer behavior, like self-driving vehicles? If so, will that hinder their adoption by society? Yeah. So the Uncanny Valley is a concept that was started in the 1970, I believe. It was around robotics, right? So people were thinking about the first ideas of building robots, and this this there's a this is a concept. People don't know whether it really actually exists. Okay. Okay. So people, it's it's very easy concept to understand. It's to say if you're building a robot and you made the robot look more and more human. For a while, people actually think it's oh, that's it's it's better. It, it, they they they're more accepting of it, more accepting of it. And then all of a sudden, you cross this line where hmm, it looks a little too human, and it gets into this what they call zombie state, where uh, there's this valley of uh, your perception of this robot. People have done started saying, well, 
does it also apply to, let's say, animated characters you see on in movies? So for a while, they can make virtual people on the screen, and they didn't look very human-like, and they got better and better. And we, oh, these movies are getting better and better. And then all of a sudden, we got a batch of movies where it looked a little off. There was yeah, something like off. Polar Express was that a real was a bad very one, common right? one. Uh, there was a final. <laughs> there was one Final Fantasy uh, when it was uh, fully animated. With people, something was off. And, and if you, there's a lot of interesting research that says maybe it was the eyes, or maybe the way the light got, got uh, was reflecting under the skin. But something, because our brains are very, very good at looking at another person's face and reading a lot of information from it, right? So even if I were just to crease my eyebrows a little bit, you would say, oh, well, that means he's in thought or he might be pondering something. But anyway, so, so there are a lot of details that these characters might not be able to present. And so people thought that uh, perhaps um, that we were entering this uncanny valley with, let's say, um, movie characters uh, and, and computer-generated characters. Um, but again, this is a concept people, well, we, we don't know that to be actually a true thing other than sort of this anecdotal. And it's fun. It's kind of easy to understand for people to go, yeah, it gets kind of creepy at some point. That's why I think a lot of people think that. However, you're right in thinking that when we think about adoption of technology, we have to get the human side of it. That's actually what the, uh, the area that I study is called human-computer interaction. And you have to understand how humans will take technology. I'll give you a good example. If you recall, Google Glass mm-hmm. was a very hyped, and they spent a lot of money building that. I haven't. Have you ever worn a Google Glass? No. Okay. So I've never seen one in the wild either. Okay. Right. Right. So obviously, it's not taken over the world as Google had thought it would. I mean, it's the ideas of saying, "Hey, you would be able to have information at your finger, at your, at, in front of your eyes at any time, where you could get your calendar, get directions." It, conceptually, it was not a bad thing, right? I mean, you'd say, "Oh, I can imagine that working." I carry my phone in my pocket. It just is now available up here by my eye. Um, but what did they not recognize? Well, they put a camera in the Google Glass, and people don't like talking to somebody else when they could be video recorded, right? And all of a sudden, it had a chilling effect on a lot of interactions with folks. And so uh, very quickly, people you know, didn't want to, and, and so had, had a very negative impression of the, of the technology, so much so that you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very powerful piece of tech. I mean, it's really an amazing piece. Of, from a tech perspective, when I saw it, I was like, this is unbelievable that they did this. And there are groups that benefit significantly from Google Glass, like folks with um, a lot of, uh, like on, on the autism spectrum, because it, it, it allows for recordings and processing of information in the world. It can actually help folks there. There's a lot of research in that space. Very, very exciting. However, for the general public, you need to understand how people will take technology. And that was obviously a a total miss in terms of that. We've learned a lot, and I think you know now they've got lots of glasses with cameras that we now know a lot more about, like Snapchat and a bunch of others have done it. But not now those glasses failed as well too, right? The yeah, snap glasses. They're not selling. As, I mean, we have to know. There people releasing new ones all the time, and now they're starting to have more computing power on them, and so you're you have to know how people are going to take technology. Right. At some level, computing can change very, very quickly in 10 years, but humans don't. Like our ability to process information hasn't changed that much from, you know, 10 generations ago, right? And we really aren't necessarily that smarter or anything. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's the interesting part and the stuff that we have to study more. Is AI real or is that more of a marketing term? I mean, it is real in the sense that you can get algorithms to to calculate a result in some way that benefits from past experiences sure but is there the concept of hey i've got a robot and i can make it intelligent um i think we're still quite a ways away from that now then again the question begs that what does intelligence even mean right If, if you have a black box and you could like for example google in google you can search for images of cats and you know lo and behold cats show up. Is that intelligence, right? Now, I mean, the way they did it is that they, they showed a, a, an algorithm, millions of pictures of cats and things that were not cats. And it, and it over by itself was able to find features that identified a cat from a not a cat, right? So cats have typically two eyes, they got fur, they, they were able to figure that stuff out. But is that intelligence? Anyway, so I, so I think that the bigger picture for us as a society is to understand what is really going on, right? So because there are some important ramifications of having computers be able to do a lot of the simple stuff 
that we used to be able to do, right? I mean, it's a workforce changer because a lot of the work that people had to do at the beginning, it used to be that they had to do, you can now offload to a computer, right? So you used to have things. So if you recall, um, when you had to, to write a letter, um, and now, then they had, then they invented spell check. Like all of a sudden you didn't need people to just go through and check your spelling. Of course, I still get emails with bad spelling on them, but you get the point. I said, now there's technology in there. Now, is that intelligence? Well, I mean, at some level, they're just looking up every word in the dictionary, but you consume value from that, right? If this can be a business side podcast, and then what I would, instead of AI, I think what we're really thinking about is value delivery, that computers can help automate some of that value delivery. So through spell check is very valuable. So that when you write an email, you are less worried that the person reading it and go, oh, wow, you misspelled a word or you actually use there instead of there instead of they are, right? And so is there a value there? Yes, absolutely is. And so that's, to me, when I think about artificial intelligence, what we're really seeing from a business side is where can we use algorithms to automate and provide value to people that, yeah, at one time was done by a human. That's that's sort of why we think of it as potentially replacing people is because in many jobs that you used to have, for example, self-driving cars that you brought up, right? Driving a car, um, you know, it, it, the advances in that space are so much so that, you know, which one's safer? Do you, you know, do you drive? Uh, are you going to have a car that's driven by a human or by a computer? You know which one is safer? We have autopilot in planes. We know there are these tasks that you don't need humans to do. So the, so is that intelligence? I, I think the w- reason why we think that is because a human used to do it, right? right? But um, so in that way, yes, and that march is not going to slow down anytime soon because if you can find value, if you're delivering value to somebody, somebody's going to pay for that. So um, I think that, yes, that is only going to continue to increase, and we need to understand what that is. Not to be scared of it because, you, you know, like are you scared of autopilot on an airplane? No, you understand that um, that, that is, you know, is that potentially safer than having the pilot totally fly the plane the entire 14 hours, but... Well, that's interesting because, you know, you you brought up a good point. We're not afraid of autopilot on the airplane, but I feel like a lot of people are afraid of self-driving cars. Absolutely. And people bring up the trolley problem and and things like that. Yeah. So how, like, is that just, we're not afraid of it because we were kind of raised with autopilot being normal? Yeah. And And is that just like a generational thing that'll sort itself out? I think you're right. And there are, I think, smaller little things that can change our... Perception. So I'll give you an example. I, I rented a car. I was driving to my cousin's wedding up in Toronto or in London, uh, Ontario. Anyway, so I got a car and I started driving because I have a, I have a, two, a 2013 car around Gainesville. I was, I was driving a newer one and it actually had um, cruise control where it automatically slowed you down and sped you up with the car in front of you. And I was like, I'd never had that in a car. And I, I started using it. I go, wow, this is really cool. Boy, I really hate my cruise control in my car, right? But what is it really doing? It's driving. It, it, it's a it's a step towards that mm-hmm. self-driving car, right? So for me, I would freak out to sit behind a car and just watch it totally drive itself. And as a computer scientist who understands the math, that the image processing that's going on, I'm like, oh, this is very scary. However, the small nudge of just say, hey, you know what, cruise control, cruise control. A lot of us are not afraid of cruise control, right? Right. Like what? Well, well, that it's it's automatically driving part of your car. It's just keeping your gas pedal at a certain length. Now with uh, with variable cruise control, all it is is it's speeding up and slowing down, and it worked great, right? I mean, I drove for hour, for a couple hours, and it was fantastic, just on a straight road. My point is that is that it, these small steps we can pallet those. Mm-hmm. And I, now I'm I, I suspect because of that I'm more accepting of potentially self driving car, and I think those small steps as we take smaller steps, smaller steps, we can we will get. There are more and more. Another example I'd throw out there is talking to your phone. I mean, a few years ago, that was a weird idea, right? This concept of talking to devices and it and it understanding. Now we're totally okay with having devices record everything we say all the time. If I told you that five years ago, you would have lost your mind. You're like, that is, that's impossible. People would rebel against that. Why would they ever do that? But how many Alexa devices or Siri devices do you have? You've got all this, and but it was slowly introduced to us. So you're right. You have to understand where society is and what they're open to. But it's, I think, smaller steps will get us there. So it's not, it's really a, a huge leap. But these smaller steps that get us to gradually accept things. For example, self-driving cars or AI or that because you see value in it. We go right. back to value, right? So I, whenever I was driving this long stretch of road in, you know, in Canada, where you know there's lots of stretches where you're just going. Um, 
And, and I didn't have to worry about that. Now, all of a sudden, I found value in that. Before, if you said, well, what's valuable about a self-driving car? But it takes away my control. That's terrible. But you get these small value adds, and you go, oh, I see why I would want to do that. I see why I want to have an assistant around with me on my phone. I see why I want to have something in my house. Um, so, so I think there's small ways. And when the, when the steps are smaller, people can see the value, and then they become more accepting of that. Okay, this is a listener-submitted question, so I'm sorry in advance. Okay. Why don't virtual humans wear underwear? And if they did, would it be boxers or briefs? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about our virtual humans. So the question I, give, I, I throw back is like, why do you care, right? And I always think that that's the interesting part. Why have I studied virtual humans for so long is because when we see these, this set of pixels that are in the shape of a human, we then attribute like, oh, this person might wear underwear or not. So, but can this kind of go back to that uncanny valley thing? Like if you have this VR person with no underwear, does that make them Yeah, oh, I, I think weirder? people want to play, people want to play <laughs> along, right? People just want to play. When you see, so what we've studied is if I show a virtual person to a nursing student, and I call this virtual person a patient, the nursing student wants to play along. They want to go, oh, what's wrong? Okay, what's your name? Well, what's your blood pressure? How, how long have you had the pain? They want, they want to play this game. Right, because we, we are story-driven people. We we are social people. Even as computer scientists, I still believe that, that that we actually are born to interact with other humans. And something about these virtual humans sort of trick our mind a little bit, where we want, oh, there's another person. Just like if you were to see another person on the street or something, you suspect they have a history, they have a backstory. And some people are very curious about virtual humans. What do they have? Now, you can create virtual humans in any way. So you can create them with underwear or not. But what we want to do, for example, at Shadow Health is saying, okay, we want to teach nursing students how to talk to patients better. How can we, get, how can we help them learn good techniques on how to get at people's backstories? Because a patient that sees a nurse they have a whole history of everything that happened in their life till that moment, right? So they have a belief system. They might have a trust of, of nurses and doctors that they might not. Uh, they might have um, economic means or they might not. They might, might be part of a marginalized group. They might not. And so it's, to, it's to, to get nursing students across the U.S. Canada to say, hey, how can I form questions properly? How can I ask these questions? And if I fail, let me fail with a virtual human. Right. Let me fail here where it's not with somebody who might be, uh, have, you know, might have some very difficult challenges. And if you, just because you haven't seen that or you don't know how to manage those situations, you fail there. So I think that that to me is always the interesting part. When people look at the virtual humans, there's usually a crack about like, well, Ben, are you, is there a virtual you anywhere? Or is there, and, and to me, that just reinforces the concept that for some reason, when people see virtual humans, they smile, they, there's a, there, there's some, something intriguing going on. And, and, and it's almost like you can't help yourself. You know, I wonder what's going on here. And you apply whatever skills you have to the virtual character at hand. So again, if you're a nurse, you, you're, and you see somebody that looks like a patient, you want to play along. Uh, and so I, I find that always the interesting part. Is it possible that I'm talking to the virtual you right now? Uh, if, if you, if, if a virtual character could respond this well, I would have probably have a Nobel prize <laughs> in my hand. Um, no, this is really me. Okay. Um, let's see. I wanted to ask you about the concept of the mythical man month. Can you describe what that is? And have you had moments where you have maybe fallen in that trap yourself? Uh, and how can it be avoided? So, yeah. So the mythical man month was a concept, was a book. It's a very, very easy to read book. So I kind of re- recommend it all. It was written by my PhD advisor. His name is Fred Brooks, who's a now retired professor, professor emeritus at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, he did a lot of work in the 60s at IBM. And one thing he noticed is that if you have a project that's late, that's a software project, right? So, uh, the, the common thought from management is like, say, hey, if you're, if you're a month behind and you've got a team of 10 people, what's the typical solution? We'll hire more people, right? Because if, if you had more people, you'd get more stuff done. But what you find out with some very difficult problems, com- computer programming being one of them, you have to talk to everybody on your team, unlike other, pro, other, other, other uh, endeavors. So if you bring in the 11th person, they have to now talk to 10 other people. You bring in the 12th person, they have to talk to 11 other people. And so what happens is all these communication lines build up. And so if you have, um, if you have a project that's late, adding more people actually makes it later. Which is counterintuitive, right? You right. say, oh, if I, you know, if, if, if I need you to 
to make a, a mile of fence posts and you only have two people, if I doubled it, you should be able to get your fence posts done faster. And for a lot of jobs, that is true. But for programming, it isn't. So there's this concept of a man month being like the way you measured how much. So if I had if I had a project that was that needed you know three months of work and I had ten people, it's thirty man months or thirty person months, right? That it would take. So if you were behind, I can just add more people and then it'll work out. But that doesn't work out. So that's why they call it the mythical man month. And that you know, as somebody who runs a lot of research projects at both the University of Florida, but also uh, we've seen this at our company, Shadow Health. It's it's very easy to think again if we're behind, let's just hire more people. Especially if you've got the capital to do it, like why not? Let's just hire more folks. But you have to understand the type of work that software development requires is not the same as work that can be very linear. That you don't really require other, you really don't require communicating with other people. Like you can take one half the work, I take the other half, and then we both come back together. That's not the way software is built. It's a very team based projects you have to talk to everybody and that's why adding more people actually slows down the project and so when you think about building teams around software you tend to build very small teams even around very big projects so if you take let me give you an example if you look at something like spotify the 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 music system if you look at the spotify app uh, on your phone or on your computer each part of spotify is actually it's, it's there's a team behind it there's not one. There's not one large team that does the whole thing. It's actually small parts within the Spotify app. Each gets owned by a small team, but that that allows them to be very agile, right? If there's one that does works on playlists, or there's one that works on album art, or one that does, then you don't need to have a whole large team. You just need small teams that can be that can uh, really innovate very very quickly. And so that's something that I. Uh, it goes back to the mythical man month that it's better to have smaller teams. Uh, that can work well and work together. You just don't want you don't want to get into the trap of thinking if I'm behind, let me just make the team bigger. There are other ways that you will, you probably would want to reconceptualize the work to be done, as opposed to saying, okay, let me just double the size of the team because that will invariably come get everything ground to a halt. But it's again, if you're not in the software development field, that might be counterintuitive. Right. So it seems like this could be applied to you know anything that has a lot of you know requires like a lot of communication, like maybe like intelligence community stuff. Yeah, absolutely, right. So so what we're finding, I mean, if you, if you go even the military operations, right? Sometimes small squads that can take take in uh, the the you know the, the conditions on the ground and adapt to it, being adaptable and being ha- and being able to have very good communication is very impactful. Surgical teams. Uh, cockpits in, in, in airplanes. You want to have good teams that you don't need to make them bigger. Right. Necessarily. You, they just need to be able to have the information at hand and be able to communicate. So yes, these problems that are usually solved by a, a, a team of each, in, in, in these situations, you, I think you'll notice that the teams are not just four of one type of person, right? Typically, if you have a squad of four, let's say uh, soldiers, they're not all four of the same type of position, right? You often have different groups of people. And so you really need that cross-function to really be able to tackle these tougher problems. And that's what what I think the Mythical Man Month is trying to uh, caution us against, is to say, hey, we need to study the problem, and you might be in a space where you're tackling a tough problem, so you can't just add more people. What is the biggest management difference you've experienced between being a director of a lab and a co-founder of a company? Wow, that, that 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 was a good question. That was the question that made me think the most as I was uh, driving in. Is uh, you know, academia um, is very very siloed in, in in the way that you know we've got departments. We don't really get to cross, you know, really interact too many too much with other folks. Um, but that's changing now. And so you know, I, I think one thing. So what I would say is, academia is starting to bring in some of the concepts that you get from the business side. Right. So so what we get from the business side is, you know, at Shadow Health, for example, if you're on a team, our teams are roughly eight people large and they have an artist sitting next to a developer, sitting next to a writer, sitting next to an education person, sitting next to our business person. So that's a team. OK, um, that concept is now starting to permeate academia because the problems that we're starting to solve now, for example, computer science is really now to make a computer faster. That's what it was whenever I first got into computer science. How do we write algorithms that solve computing and make computers faster and more powerful? That's not so much the problem today, right? Now we think about things such as security. Uh, how do we network things together? How do we 
use computer graphics or virtual reality. So there's much more of an applied thing. But when you do that, when you if you look at virtual reality, for example, to build a good virtual reality application, you get a team of four people. What majors do you think you'd want? Right? You don't want four programmers. Right. That would be a very technically interesting but very boring experience, right? I think you'd agree. You'd want somebody who understands how to tell a story, like a narrative person. You'd probably want somebody with art backgrounds. You'd want somebody with uh, development backgrounds. So you want, a, 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 again, a cross-functional team. And that's where I see academia really going is breaking down some of these silos and, and solving problems that all of us can get together and do. Now, from the business side, I think one of the things that they benefit from the academic side, that that we've learned at Shadow Health is to have is, is these frameworks and foundations that academics study can be applied to the, the business world and can give you a, a good foundation or a good framework to hang a lot of your business decisions on, right? So if you're trying to make decisions between different things, I, before I think a lot of the folks in the business side, um, perhaps as you may, maybe the younger companies, kind of shop from the hip, right? They make a decision, they have to make quick decisions. Uh, and, and that's totally understandable. But what academia can do, once you have some time to think about it, say, what are the frameworks that people study and can bring over that your customers use, that, that, that you can use, that have scientific rigor behind it? And, and then you make better decisions from that. So I, I, so I find m myself now interested in the space like where, how can academia benefit more from um, sort of the, the thinking of startups? And then also how can startups better leverage the, the findings from academia so that we, we can strengthen both of them, right? So you recently completed an Ironman triathlon. How did you fit training for an Ironman into your schedule that's already packed with academia, business, and raising three children? Uh, I, I, my kids would say I did it very poorly. I, I was very proud of myself at the time. Um, but, you know, so training, for, so training for an Ironman took me about a year after doing uh, after being able to do half the distance, it took me about a year. And one thing I would say to that is, um, I didn't know how I was going to do it. And, and so what, what, so I, I built a community of people around me that had that experience. So that, that's always, whatever that is, whatever your equivalent of an Ironman is. So if you talk to me, so I did the Ironman Florida, November 2nd. Uh, if you talk to me, let's say January 1st of that year, you said, Ben, how are you going to do that? Ironman? I I no clue. I would have told you that it, it seems impossible. How are you going to fit in the 13, 14 hours a week of training, especially the last couple of months? I go, I've got no clue. But what I did do is I said, hey, who around me knows where I'm, who's done it before and who can give me some good advice? So I found other people who had kids who had pulls on their time and go, look, you understand that uh, the, the, you, you, you know where I'm coming from. How can I see that? How can I do it? And they really gave me some good plans. And I trusted the plan. You trust the training. You trust people around you that have done it before. And I think that, so again, whatever it was, I didn't know how it was going to happen. A lot of people are like, oh, you must have known how it was all going to fit in. I say, no. At first, I didn't know how that was going to fit in. And it was seven hours. That already was very, very hard. But then you start figuring out places here and there. And I'll give you an example. My kids now, again, the ages are, my twins are 10. And I've got a nine-year-old. They ride their bike about the same speed that I run. Okay. So all of a sudden, as soon as I found that out, I was so excited because I go, okay, guess what? You're each going to get a ride individually. With so your you're, dad. are your 10-year-olds doing 20-milers with you? No, no. They, they would go. I mean, they, they could go and say, let's go ride for three miles. But it's each one individually mm -hmm. because they want one-on-one -on -one time with dad anyways, right? right? They don't, I mean, uh, especially when you get to that age, they want the individual time. So all of a sudden, there's a way for me to get triple the miles, but I got to spend time with my kids individually. And they were riding at a comfortable pace where we could talk about how our school is going and things like that. So there was opportunities to sort of capture time. And so it was only throughout, throughout the process that I discovered that. I didn't discover that on January 1st. I discovered that along the way. I found out that, hey, and then I got my kids. We, we did a lot of swimming together, but we would swim with our laps individually. They would help me with stuff. And so it was finding the way uh, so anytime anybody wants to tackle some large goal like that, and yes, at, again, January 1st, I too would have said it was impossible, but I trusted that I could find other people that had that experience. So that was my first thing is that finding the other people, they gave me a plan that was doable, and I didn't need to know how I was going to do the entire plan at the beginning. I was going to just go with that, and uh, it ended up being just, just one of those experiences for, uh, that I'm going to remember uh, at the very end of my life, uh, to have my whole family there and be able to celebrate with them. They did say they do want a, me to take a pause for a little while. Um, I think, again, they're 10, 10, and 9, and about three years, they're not going to want to care to spend time with me. 
and then I'll probably <laughs> maybe go one. do another one then. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's it's amazing how you know busy. It doesn't matter what anybody's doing; they have the perception of being busy. Mm-hmm. But there is capacity there. You just have to find a way to to make it work. There is, and I've got a lot of. If you ever want to do a follow up uh, podcast on, on reconceptualizing work, so uh, I, I've because one thing that this process, that this journey did teach me is the way we think about work. Um, you know, it, you you can easily get in a you can get into thought you can get into a, a space where you go, oh, that's not possible because I'm just too busy, right? And if if you again back to January first, if you said Ben, where are you going to fit in 13 hours a week? Now, I was already doing something out of like four or five hours at that time. So we're going to do an additional eight hours a week in your time. Um, you know, and I still want to binge watch Netflix. And I still want to you know, have a drink with my wife late at night and just, just you know, be human about stuff. Uh, I would say it's, it's impossible. But what do you have to do? And I've got, again, a lot of thoughts about this. I did a lot of reading up on how do you rethink the work to be done? Right. So the concept of checklists and things like that just don't work because there's just too many things. And it's not just like I'm just going to stay up even later. You have to. This is a long. It's a you've done a marathon. It it is a marathon. You can't just sprint right out the gate. So you really have to rethink the work that needs to be done. And so the the word that I would throw out to your listeners is I I ask people. I think I start off with you. Say, where am I going to be valuable to you? And I get people to prioritize to me where they see the most value. And so a lot of times, so for example, if my students send me something to read, uh, let's say a paper we're writing, they, I tell them, don't just send me a draft and go, here, can you give me comments? I go, tell me how much time you need of me and what, where that time is best spent. And you'll be surprised that they'll say, okay, I need 30 minutes of your time. I need it in this, this, and this area. Now, if they didn't tell me that, I would have read the whole thing. It would take me two to three hours. But I'm not really being equally valuable across this two to three hours, mm-hmm. right? I'm being valuable at high value in places, but I'm being very not valuable in a lot of other places. And so I've been really working on getting, working with other people to help get them to help me identify where I'm useful to them. And that has been transformative, really, to ask that simple question, how can I be valuable? Yeah, I noticed that on your website, um, I was doing a little background research, Mm -hmm. and you have like form letters for people to send to you, you know, for certain requests. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really amazing because you kind of eliminate all the the back and forth of, you know, what do you need? Do you need this? Do you need that? It's, you know, you kind of have it all laid out there for them. So yeah. they can get, you know, like you said, the most value out of you. Yeah, that, that's, you're absolutely right. And so when, when you look around the world and you can say, and so I think that with my kids too and my wife and the relationships that you have in your life, where are ways to be valuable? Um, and that's where sometimes the business side has really kicked in, right? Because that's how businesses survive is you deliver value. So, you know, uh, you could be, you could have an awesome product, but if nobody sees value in it, you're not selling anything. So it's really re- reconceptualized the way I think about the time that I have. Because that's that's a that's a very precious resource for all of us is time, right? Time and, and, and intentional time, like attention that you can really do. Um, so you know, it, I think that there is a that business side has kicked in and made me go, okay, um, get your do market research, get your customers to tell you what they need. Don't try to assume that. That's why again, when I came in here, you know, I it, I, I think of say, hey, I, you're sort of a customer customer of my time. I'm not going to assume that I know what you need. If you tell me, then I can be better off, uh, you know, addressing that. So, um, yeah. As a professor, how are you affected by spending lots of time with PhD students only to see them leave Gainesville? Do you oh wish my more of them would stay in the Ooh, area to collaborate is, with you? That or? Is, that's a great, great question. Um, Look, you, you know, there, in the academic world, there's a lot of value in teaching somebody and they can go off um, and sort of pass on your, they call it educational DNA, right? The way. And so there's actually, you would want your students, the ideal world for me is my students go off and become a professor at another, another school. So I've got students who are now professors at Georgia, um, UMBC, UT San Antonio, a variety of schools around. And that is my preference a lot of them do leave uh academia or yeah when they graduate and they go into facebook amazon netflix google bang right or alphabet um and that is that's very very tough i think the one of the toughest things is not only phd students but undergrads we've got 2000 undergrads in computer science here at the university of florida we're one of the biggest departments in the world in computer science most of them leave gainesville I mean, think about all that talent that is, yes, you're adding GDP to the country, which is good, right? But you would love for it to stay 
within the state. Right. Right? The main thing I would say there is we have to better conceptualize what a successful career looks like. Right? See, if you get talked to a lot of uh, folks coming in, they're 18 years old, and they come to Gainesville, Florida, the 2,000 or so undergrads in computer science, I bet you if you ask the 500 or so freshmen, uh, what does a successful career to you look like? Um, I suspect that a lot of them, one, might not know. And that's a tough question. I might not have known that when I was 18 either. But a lot of them would say, well, if I went to work with Facebook or Google, that would be successful. Not many of them say, hey, you know, it'd be great to start up a company in Gainesville, right? Um, and so that's, that's something I think that we as an, as an academic institution, but also as a community, uh, we all can play a role in that is to say the, it is tough because what people think is – if you approach a senior and go, hey, have you thought about starting a company? It's sort of too late, you know? Um, you you want to get into their mental model of what a successful career would look like earlier on. So that's something that that's from my perspective is to have more examples to have uh, to really get folks when they first come in uh, into Gainesville to say, hey, this could be a place that you could stay for a very long time. And if you know that from your first year in, because you could be loving life. I mean, how many alumni love Gainesville? How many of them want you know would look for any excuse to come back and spend time? Right. But they think the only way they can make it is they have to be at some you know, be in New York City or be out in the West Coast. That, 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 and, and so I think that that would be my response is to say we need to think about ways to, to, for, for people to envision success here because there absolutely are opportunities here a lot. But to your point, there are all these stories that people don't know. Mm-hmm. Hence why I'm spending investing time in you in this podcast because I want to be valuable to, to our community. Like, hey, when you say, Ben, I want to spend an hour uh, in this space, that's, that's one of my goals of coming here and spending time and talking with you is to hopefully encourage it's to build momentum across our community to say we've got to show folks that a successful very uh, fulfilling career and life can be had here in Gainesville and you can start thinking about that the moment you come in or even before you, you get here to Gainesville right and that's I think the way we can start to get a lot of those folks to say wow I want to start a f- I mean you, you've got a family you know living in Gainesville is really a great place for a lot of folks uh, um, it's got a lot that, that that can be offered here but if you don't think that you can make a, a good income or you don't think it'll be successful or you don't think that people will see that as high stature then right. we're kind of behind the eight ball already well great well dr lock thank you for coming on the show i appreciate it thank you so much mm-hmm.